when they emerge from their situation of trafficking and they encounter people like my task force, the first thing that we have to do is build trust with them because the system did fail them and the system allowed for them to be exploited. And we have to help build that trust again in the systems that we're supposed to take care of them and protect them from exploitation. Welcome everyone to Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. I'm here with JJ Jenflone, who is our co-host for the evening, and we have a special guest, Leanne McCollum. Very special. <laughs> Leanne I McCollum. hope I can live up to expectations. And you don't know this yet, Leanne, but this is episode 50, so it's Extra special, oh, special. Wow. Happy anniversary. That's a big thank one. You. Oh, thank you. What is 50? What is mineral? That diamond? Gold? Uh, I have a, this beautiful thing called the internet. It is our. So for the 50th, it should be gold. 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 That's phenomenal. That's if great. we can get some that's human trafficking free, that would be wonderful. <laughs> we can make that happen <laughs> i don't know if there's a certification for that one yet <laughs> leanne get on it you're the one working out there in the field oh gosh i don't know about that i don't know if there's any gold in louisiana but maybe 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 well, maybe, that. <laughs> maybe, that, maybe that's a good lead, a lead in for then so maybe leanne can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and and what you do absolutely yes my name is Leanne McCallum. I'm the task force coordinator for the Greater New Orleans Human Trafficking Task Force. Uh, it's a federally funded task force that brings together service providers and law enforcement for a multidisciplinary coalition to both investigate and prosecute in cases of trafficking and then also provide services to victims and survivors of trafficking. So it funds several different aspects of the kind of process of anti-trafficking. And I also provide education and training. Prior to doing this work here in Louisiana, I was uh, at the Human Trafficking Center in Denver with these two wonderful folks who are on this with me today. Um, which is exciting, alum get-together. And uh, I have a background in human trafficking research focused on labor trafficking. So that's kind of my background is uh, outreach, education, and research. So the Greater New Orleans Human Trafficking Task Force is a federally funded entity that was created by an enhanced collaboration grant from the Department of Justice. And the funding is funneled through a lead service provider, which is Covenant House New Orleans, and a lead law enforcement agency, which happens to be the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office. In Louisiana, instead of counties, they have parishes. And um, Jefferson Parish is half of the city of New Orleans parish uh, jurisdiction. And so the Greater New Orleans Human Trafficking Task Force was created in 2015 per this grant to both serve victims and survivors of trafficking with comprehensive case management, housing, 
basic needs, risk management, and a multitude of other services that we can kind of talk about. And then we also provide funding to law enforcement partners to help facilitate proactive victim-centered investigations of human trafficking and aid in the process of building cases that we can actually prosecute um, traffickers and um, kind of be on the cutting edge of investigations in that realm. Like, that's just so amazing. It's really nice. One of the things that we've been trying to do recently um, is just have sort of more practitioners or sort of people in the field on the, on the front lines on mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. just because I think it's really good, too. We have a lot of younger listeners or sort of people in, in undergrad, and so I think that there are careers in this field, I think, is really helpful to, to emphasize that have, like, an academic and obviously, like, a very heavy research basis, but aren't necessarily only, like, research or academic-based. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's pretty incredible just the number of different Uh, human trafficking related jobs there are out there. It's just not really clear um, externally. So as a case manager, you can serve a victim of trafficking. As an investigator, you can be working with law enforcement federally and locally to investigate human trafficking cases. I work with folks in all different fields um, from medical providers, you know, psychologists, counselors, all the way to, you know, kind of the folks I'm talking about who work in this anti-trafficking field. So there's absolutely opportunity out there, and it's growing just because this anti-trafficking movement is growing, you know, basically annually. Every year there's more awareness and uh, more federal money as well as uh, private donations that kind of focus on eradicating human trafficking. Oh, I'm just like, it just makes me so happy. So you came into the Human Trafficking Center mm-hmm. when Seth and I were about to leave it, really. Yes. Because it's it's such a quick turnover. I think trying to explain <laughs> to people that it's, it's a two-year... Yeah. You're in, yeah. you kind of, you, you make your bones, and then, like, you're out. <laughs> right. By the, right. Time you're, by the time you're leading in the Human Trafficking Center, you're also almost gone. Exactly. Yeah, and I think I I have the added benefit of having conducted research and outreach prior to coming to DU. Um, In undergrad is actually when I discovered my interest in human tracking. I did a study abroad in Southeast Asia looking at the politics of Southeast Asia, and I learned about all these human rights issues surrounding gender and surrounding migration, and I kind of fell into this you know, in the 2010-ish, and it was just a great time to start studying it because there was a burgeoning interest in research and kind of um, it was the beginning of a very public um, interest in human trafficking. And so I've been really lucky to have the Human Trafficking Center kind of bolster that research knowledge to set me up for a career doing the work. Yeah, I remember when we were, when you were first coming in, and they kind of give us, like, a little, like, dossier on who all, like, the new people are coming in, and I remember yours was like, this girl also does China, (laughs) and I was like, oh, good, I'm not alone! Yeah, yeah, oh my gosh, it seems like a distant memory at this point, but then again, Louisiana is so different from the rest of the country, sometimes it feels like maybe China and Louisiana aren't so different, you know? It's yeah, all I different. 
I I could see that actually. Yeah. That it's no. just sort of this constant. It, more things are similar than not anymore. Is what is what I've realized. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and the weather is certainly you know like Taiwan a little bit, <laughs> southern China. You know, a little bit of tropical heat. Some I, uh, yeah. Yeah, I could see that for for sure. So, what what do you think the difference is? Maybe since you you started off, I think, and clearly, like most of your research was labor trafficking based. Mm-hmm. Are you are you seeing that mostly in Louisiana? Are you guys doing mostly sex trafficking, or what what sort of is your day to day experience yeah. with that? Well, I think Louisiana is in a very interesting context in the sense that. The, the first thing you need to know is that the Catholic Church and and Catholic beliefs are absolutely fundamentally built into the culture. And so um, even the name parishes, like I mentioned earlier, my partner is Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office. The, the title parish for county is because back in the day, you know, parishes and the association with churches. And so when you think about the way that modern human rights movements kind of work in Louisiana, there's this huge faith-based presence that's conducting a lot of the important victim services and nonprofit work. And so uh, here in Louisiana, there's a real emphasis on child sex trafficking in particular. I know that Shared Hope International, which is an international I guess, or national. Shared Hope is a uh, child sex trafficking advocacy uh, organization that's really well known. And they have given Louisiana an A-plus for its legislation. Mm. Now, some people would disagree with that. But for child sex trafficking legislation, there is a lot of good work happening. For adult sex trafficking victims and for labor trafficking victims, there's a lot less for resources, there's a lot less awareness. And so um, in our day to day, we're really kind of trying to educate other service providers and educate our public servants about the, the diversity of experiences of trafficking to try to shift some of the emphasis on child um, sexual exploitation and child sex trafficking toward a more broader understanding of exploitation. And that's fueled partially by the impact that the faith-based community has had on the trafficking movement in Louisiana. I think it's it's really interesting to hear sort of this mix of how faith-based organizations or just how the history of an area or the context of the area ends up being so important in, in legislation and how law enforcement maybe treats potential victims or looks mm-hmm. at the situation, mm-hmm. which I think yeah. sometimes lay people don't realize quite so much. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's an important part of um, this context is that faith-based organizations have a huge role to play in not only you know, the advocacy and kind of framing the way that we talk about human trafficking, but also with the victim services themselves. So quite a few of the partners that I work with for service providers are faith-based or have a faith component to them. Uh, On my grant, my lead service provider is Covenant House New Orleans, which has Catholic roots. And then I also have uh, Catholic Charities Archdiocese of New Orleans mm. as a uh, one of my sub grantees. 
I work alongside a Healing Place Serve in Baton Rouge. And so uh, there, there are a multitude of these different faith-based organizations that absolutely are integral to the service provision um, that's available to trafficking victims. And it's, it's incredible because they have so many resources and because there's a shared messaging among a lot of the organizations I'm familiar with Catholic Charities. We did some volunteering with them in Colorado, and I was really impressed with how they did things in their work with homeless yeah. here. So Catholic Charities in New Orleans, at least, um, has a real emphasis on immigration services as well as homelessness. And so post-Katrina, when there were a lot of migrants that came into the city to help with the rebuilding, there were quite a few migrants who were part of that rebuilding of the city. And as that was happening... There was some exploitation happening and uh, really taking advantage of foreign nationals. And so Catholic Charities stepped to the forefront to serve those victims and serve those uh, communities to ensure that um, they got to enjoy you know, resources as they were so critical to rebuilding the city. And, and that's kind of what started their um position in the in the human trafficking movement in New Orleans and they still are um, one of our top partners for serving foreign nationals here. Yeah I have to say as someone who who grew up within the Catholic Church and is still a practicing Catholic it's never underestimate the power of the Catholic Church to organize <laughs> and, and, and manage things in a like if, the, if you needed a spreadsheet or a worksheet <laughs> they have got it on lock. <laughs> I don't so, doubt that. Yeah, no, as someone who got married in the Catholic Church, like, they know their paperwork. They are ready for their <laughs> forms. They know their people. They know their budgets. It's, they're, they're, they're great. Um, I mean, they're great for a number of reasons beyond that, but I, I've always right. enjoyed that, that they kind of, like, they're very organized mm -hmm. um, and communicable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, one of the main things we had discussed to talk about today was uh, services for trafficking victims and to, to set that up, as uh, people in the audience, as you may know, you, you hear about human trafficking, you hear about what's happening with victims, you hear about arrests or, or perhaps raids. In other words, you hear about what's happening when the person is being trafficked or right when it ends. But you don't hear so much about what happens after a person is trafficked. It's as if the clouds part and everything is peachy and good because they've been rescued. And... We are for people not being in a position where they're trafficked, but just getting a person out of that situation or a person getting out of that situation does not end the experience. What are some reasons why that might be, Leanne? Yeah, that's a really great question, Seth. And I think it's really critical that we start this conversation acknowledging exactly what you said. And it's that a lot of folks assume that once a person is rescued, the person who's rescued immediately is like, oh, thank you. I wanted to leave. I have been desperate to be saved. I'm so thankful for you. I'm going to go X, Y, Z. And, and frankly, that's just not the case for a lot of victims. And I should clarify for the folks at home that I am not a survivor of trafficking. So I'm really speaking from a systems level and from a practitioner of anti-trafficking work. So I really want to leave space for survivors that there's a huge variety of experiences. And I'm just going to speak in generalities 
about um, what I see in my day-to-day. But a lot of trafficking survivors, when they emerge from the the, um, experience of trafficking, there are several different things that can be impediments to their not just surviving, but then moving to thriving. The first is um, some of the after effects of the trauma of human trafficking. Trauma, just like the way that we describe trauma with human trafficking victims is that it's compound. What that means is that generally with trafficking victims and survivors, there's not just one experience of trauma. It's not a single sexual assault or a single act of violence. It's a culmination of experiences of trauma over time, which usually is involved in the experience of coercion or um, uh, in that force fraud and coercion aspect of trafficking. So when a person is, let's say for a client who's been sex trafficked, it's not that, you know, a, a pimp, let's say in this case, picked her up off the streets, kidnapped her, and then tied her to something. Oftentimes, it's a system of creating a relationship or harming that person, telling them they're not worthy, physically harming them, and feel stuck in that situation. And so following when a person leaves a situation of trafficking, there's the immediate need related to that trauma. So there's the counseling, there's physical medical needs that can be associated with that. Another issue that um, face trafficking victims and survivors when they emerge from trafficking is it can be um, a fear or mistrust of systems. And that can be law enforcement, that can be service providers. A lot of times with domestic trafficking cases, the folks that we encounter who emerge from a trafficking situation have had negative instances with law enforcement. They've had a bad encounter with a a police officer who called them derogatory names, not realizing that they were a victim. Or they've come across service providers who have been condescending to them or told them that they're bad people when they're in an experience of exploitation. And so um, when they emerge from their situation of trafficking and they encounter people like my task force, the first thing that we have to do is build trust with them because the system did fail them and the system allowed for them to be exploited. And we have to help build that trust again in the systems that were supposed to take care of them and protect them from exploitation. What does trust building look like? So trust building looks different for every single individual. Oftentimes in the first um, encounter with a victim or survivor, it depends on the um, approach that the advocate or the case manager will take. But generally the first thing they do is just say that they're there to support them, treats them with dignity and respect because the trafficker doesn't really treat them with dignity and respect, you know. The other people in life haven't necessarily treated them with dignity and respect, given that we know a lot of trafficking victims are victimized because of their vulnerability. So the first thing we do is is try to let them know that we hear them and we value their opinion and that they're in charge of their life going forward. We don't want to push any 
beliefs on them. We don't want to push any course of action. We educate the victim or survivor to allow them to make the right choice for themselves. Um, so we give them all of the options on the table and then they get to choose the best path for themselves and then we support that decision. Now that being said, with trafficking, because of the compound trauma, because of the vulnerability of individuals, um, you know, they may have a criminal record that bars them from gainful employment. They may have a history of, um, you know, they may not have ever learned how to work in a conventional work environment. They may not have the skills um, to be really successful in quote unquote, you know, normal everyday things as a result of their tracking situation. And as a result of some of these different difficulties when a person emerges from trafficking, oftentimes these victims and survivors will actually go back to that trafficking situation. So um, what we like to say with social services is that we have to rethink what success looks like because a trafficking victim or survivor isn't just going to emerge and say, I'm, I'm good, I'm fixed, I'm going to never go back to that. You know, a lot of times the, the person will go back to that because of fear, um, because of that trauma bonding that can happen with a trafficker, uh, because of, you know, socioeconomic reasons. There are a lot of reasons why a trafficking victim or survivor might go back to a situation they'll be victimized in. And that may happen to them multiple times, not just once or twice. And so we kind of acknowledge that, you know, victims not, are not necessarily just going to emerge and be fine. And it might be a process of helping them access the, the um, resources they need and help build their capacity to not fall back into victimization. And it may take years or it may take multiple touch points. Yeah, well, trafficking tends to sound uh, physically and emotionally exhausting. And mm -hmm. like we, we know what grad school is like where we kind of <laughs> push ourselves really hard by choice and are exhausted. Uh -huh. But uh -huh. when anyone is in that state, it makes it harder to make decisions. It makes it hard to want to make hard choices. I mean, it just makes things harder, I, I, I should say. So, well, I think that there's also a component of safety and stability you know if you know going back to the um, sex trafficking victim for example if a person is with a quote-unquote Romeo pimp so the the kind of um, trafficker that acts like a boyfriend acts like they love the person and then forces the victim to you know um, sell sex uh, that is a really strong bond, and, and if that person gets a hold of them, you know, that bond is there, no different than um, the Stockholm Syndrome that you might see um, in victims of other crimes, um, like kidnapping. And, and I think that that's really important, is a lot of times people don't recognize how very difficult the trafficking can be on a person trauma-wise, and how it can affect a person's behavior to maybe respond in a way that as you or I, as people who haven't experienced trafficking, can't really fully grasp. And so um, empathy 
to recognize the way that trauma manifests in behavior is a really critical aspect of this, to not judge the victim and not um, get angry at them and, and um, also just not to burn out as a practitioner because you just know that that's part of the recovery process. Yeah, well, people think about the control part. They don't always think about the manipulation part, like just how mm-hmm. how much of the control is through consistent manipulation to Absolutely. get them to do things that affects one's psyche. Absolutely. One of the things that strikes me then is that when you guys are sort of pairing victims uh, survivors with service providers or, or vice versa, how much control maybe, shall I say, like a, a survivor has to, to set their, their own agenda for what they want? So, for example, if you have someone who's been brought in by law enforcement and identified as a victim, do they get to say, you know, this is the service that I want, thank you very much for offering me these other services, but I'm not interested in that? Or does that vary from person to person or... In theory, uh, any any victim or survivor tracking should be able to pick the services that best fit their needs. In practice, there are some service providers who have very strict rules and regulations to access their services for a myriad of reasons that we can kind of talk about later. Um, but not every service provider is necessarily going to have a ton of flexibility. However, most of them do allow for that victim or survivor to kind of pave the direction in which that service plan looks. With housing providers, there's a lot less flexibility, particularly. Uh, but with other services, such as counseling or um, you know job readiness, things of that nature, oftentimes the, the victim or survivor does get to choose that direction. And before I forget, I want to explain why I keep toggling between the term victim and survivor. For the purpose of my grant, because it's federally funded to serve uh, victims of trafficking, a victim of trafficking is based off of a federal definition and it gives a person legal status to access services. And I recognize that uh, a lot of folks really don't care for the term victim. And so when I'm using it, I'm really just explaining it in terms of folks who are legally determined to be victims and therefore can access services through us. Um, But I acknowledge that a lot of folks do prefer to be called survivors or survivor leaders. Um, So I I apologize for using that term. And it's, um, it's you know, just a part of federal funding for services. Yeah, we've talked about that before, which is sort of the words within the human trafficking field are so difficult because some are sort of the norms that are used, some are the mm-hmm. the legal definitions, and then some are just, I, I would say, sort of like the academic terms or, or the um, survivor-oriented terms that have been picked up within the community. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I like to define my terms just so folks know the perspective I'm coming from. And, and in my case, I use victims specifically because it affords an individual um, rights to the services that um, service providers and my task force who are funded can provide them. So now everyone knows that's why, but I, I know <laughs> it's a little problematic to, to paint everyone as a victim. So is the is a basic psych or medical evaluation something that's voluntary? Every single service provider has a different intake process. Most of those intake processes do look into a person's 
mental health at some basic level, checking out, you know, where they're at that day. But most service providers who are bigger, who have more resources, will also have the client then see a medical professional and or a counselor or a therapist to kind of gauge where they're at. Just because um, service providers know that there's so much trauma associated with trafficking for for a lot of victims and survivors. JJ, I heard you have to uh, to run, so uh, thanks for joining the conversation. Yeah, no. Till next thank you guys time. So, thank you guys so much for having me in the conversation. Till next time, guys. Bye. Hi, JJ, great to hear from Bye. you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then we shall continue. With okay. uh, Leanne McCollum. Hi. So, what are the types of services that people can be offered? In the case of the task force that I work with, there are a myriad of services that a are myriad. available. Yes, there is a a plethora, a cornucopia. You can put that on your SAT word list for the students out there. I guess that would mean they were high school students, though, not college students. But, you know, there could be high school students listening. But there, there are a lot of different services that are available. The first and foremost one is housing. We do provide emergency 24-7 housing for victims and survivors of trafficking of any age, gender, race, etc., which is really remarkable because there are a lot of communities that don't have emergency housing, which is really... Um, it's, it's one of the biggest concerns that I, I know that Louisiana is facing is, is housing. And so we're really lucky to have that in New Orleans. Um, yeah, after let, that, let's we stay do... on housing for a moment. Okay. Uh, yeah. First of all, uh, how long can they stay? Like, is this transitional housing emerge- just for emergencies or what? In, in our community, we have... Um, emergency, transitional, and long-term housing. So we're really fortunate because we have a large network of partners in services for people experiencing homelessness, as well as partners within the domestic violence, sexual assault movements. And so we don't have a ton of human trafficking specific housing, but we Mm -hmm. have quite a few partners who are willing to take trafficking victims and survivors. And um, with that being said, we have emergency housing for victims of any um, age, race, et cetera, so long as they're a victim or survivor of trafficking. They can stay, usually if it's transitional, unless they're the exact age of that organization, they'll stay for anywhere from one day to four or five days, and then we will um, refer them out to a placement that's more suited to their demographic and their need. We have transitional housing, especially for uh, adult female trafficking survivors and um, underage female sex trafficking survivors. We have a real emphasis on housing for females and for girls. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot out there for men, and especially not with comprehensive services. And so that's one of the real gaps within mm-hmm. our community, as well as um, housing for labor trafficking victims. Oftentimes, those folks end up in um, one of the housing providers for people experiencing homelessness, where oftentimes there aren't quite as many comprehensive services, such as the counseling and um, 
uh, things of that nature. So it's a it's a serious gap in our community, and it's been identified as the number one issue that's facing trafficking victims today in our state. So we're we're having ongoing talks, just kind of figuring out how we can improve and how we can be better because there's there are just not enough beds. There are never enough beds. And yeah. um, and housing is expensive and there's application and process and all that. Right, right. And then, uh, you know, the, there are some unique uh, issues that victims and survivors of trafficking can pose given their experiences. So, you know, for example, a lot of the domestic trafficking survivors that we serve do have criminal records or do have records that can either stop them from getting housing, um, can make it more difficult for them to get long-term employment. It essentially can become a real barrier for them to be able to pursue uh, more normal pathways to um, recovery. And so uh, we have, you know, worked with HUD here in New Orleans to kind of figure out how can we better provide housing to those folks and long-term support. Thankfully, with our grant, um, our service providers, each one is different, but we don't really have a statute of limitations on when a person can be served in relation to when the trafficking happened. And also, there's a lot of flexibility from the amount of time a person can be served. I know one of our service providers, that I, I won't name them, but one of them, um, provides uh, a lot of support to victims years after um, they've emerged from trafficking. And I think that it's really phenomenal because it creates like a, a support system and trust and um, kind of makes a, a great safety blanket, safety net for folks um, that, that maybe, you know, do see setbacks in their recovery. Yeah. So housing made me think of something else. And that's mm-hmm. because I, I uh, went through an orientation once with a women's shelter and uh, for primarily for domestic abuse. And one of their things mm-hmm. was the shelter, like it was secret. Like they, they did not publish where it was for mm-hmm. fear of partner retribution or, or, yes. or partner follow-up violence. And I, right. I, I do recall that with trafficking victims, both labor and sex, that that's a fear that people have and it's a legitimate concern so mm-hmm. i was wondering how that t- how security issues might factor into housing or or other services yeah that's a really great point um every housing provider has a little bit different um perspective on that right because some some shelters like Covenant House New Orleans, for example, they want to be a beacon of hope for youth who are um, in that like 18 to, to 25 range and let them know that they're always open. And so to them, it's really important that they're quite public, that people know their name, know where they're located, because they want to be that um, open arms, the open arms to that population. Then there's the opposite, where we have... Um, you know, a shelter that we work with, Eden House, New Orleans, where they're a shelter specifically for um, female trafficking victims. And they um, do have, you know, a secret location. And it's a really critical part of intake is the safety planning. And that's something that every 
client that they see, uh, well, any, any trafficking victim or survivor by best practices should be getting safety planning because of, you know, the general safety concerns that can come with it. But I know with them in particular, they have a lot of very specific rules related to um, keeping their location private, making sure that it looks residential, and, and just ensuring that the people inside know that they're safe, but also that they are going to have restrictions on uh, their experience as a result of those, um, you know, privacy and safety concerns. Okay. So other services. And, and thank you for all Other that. services. Yeah, of course. Of course. With our task force partners, we have a lot of different services. We have um, emergency housing, case management, ongoing case management, legal advocacy, transportation, housing, food, um, basic needs, medical, mental health. So we, we have a really comprehensive list of services that are available to the people that we serve. And it's great because it, it allows each client to do an intake and kind of identify what their needs are. And then as their needs grow, they're able to access the different services. So maybe when a person first comes in, they don't necessarily need you know, support for schooling, for example. But as time goes on, they maybe lose their need for one thing, but then will uh, want support with getting their GED, which we can do. And so it's great because the services can um, kind of expand and change as the client themselves expand and change. So how did they coordinate, especially like with information sharing and providing somewhat of a holistic experience? Yes, that is a really challenging part of our framework because we're sharing information in some cases across organizations, but at the same time, we really want to honor confidentiality. We want to honor what victims and survivors want us to share and what we don't. And I would say because our task force is relatively new, just having started in 2015, we're still kind of learning the way that we share information um, safely and, um, you know, making sure that confidentiality is met. We're working on a couple different frameworks for information sharing, you know, like um, a release form, kind of like when you go to a doctor's office, they'll have a release form that will say, you can share my information with. And then it'll say a line where you would write mom and then mom's phone number. And then you check it and you give approval. Um, we're in the process of making something like that. So if a client, let's say, goes to Covenant House first, but then wants to access counseling at the New Orleans Family Justice Center, that we could do information sharing like that. Oftentimes, the best practice is actually having each individual organization that serves the client do a separate intake. And the reason for that is because um, each organization has a totally different mandate. And so they're going to be looking for very different information. And, and so um, I know that's the best practices that I've heard from CAST LA. CAST is the Coalition to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking in um, California. They're phenomenal. And um, you know, they, they really are trying to educate folks on not sharing too much information and being really mindful of privilege and confidentiality because of the implications that can come 
when people are oversharing information across service providers and with folks like me who I'm not an attorney, but if you're sharing case information with me, I could get subpoenaed, for example, mm -hmm. and have to testify in court. So we try really hard to kind of do the bare minimum in regards to that to protect our clients from, um, you know, ramifications later in life. So in terms of services, uh, which ones are the most common or popular or whatever word is the right word to use? Prevalent? Yeah. Uh, the services that we refer the most are housing, number one. Uh, last year alone, we had 90 different people who were placed with housing through our grant. So that's pretty. That's a pretty high number for one entity to be placing. The other thing that we provide a lot of is uh, legal advocacy and immigration support. So folks who are foreign nationals, uh, folks who maybe are looking for s civil restitution or um, looking for pro bono legal help, we will facilitate that introduction between the client and the legal professional uh, or in the case of Catholic Charities, they're one of our uh, service providers so we'll refer out to them. Another really important part of the services we provide is just the basic necessities. So we'll get calls asking for baby supplies or um, food or transportation for a client to leave the state or leave the city. So we're taking care of those emergency needs quite often. Um, so those are the probably the top three. Oh, and um, ongoing case management. Ongoing case management is it's kind of our bread and butter. We have a case manager, a head case manager at all of our organizations within the task force. And that case manager is doing the intake for the clients and also checking in on them, seeing how they are, um, kind of trying to figure out where they are in their life and their recovery and, and be a support for that person. Okay. That's all helpful. I hope mm -hmm. it's helpful to everyone listening. Are there uh, any other thoughts you wanted to share? Yes. One of the things that I think is the hardest part of working in the anti-trafficking field is the cross-disciplinary and multidisciplinary collaboration. It's really challenging because the things that make us really good at what we do make us different than other people. So a law enforcement agent has a completely different perspective on life, a different perspective of right and wrong, a different perspective of what goals are than a service provider or a medical professional or a legal professional. And so when you have all these different folks who are touching in the life of a trafficking victim or survivor, you have all these different people who are trying to work together who come from completely different perspectives. And it becomes really challenging because, you know, we expect other folks to think the way that we think. You know, I always hope that people will be victim-centered in their um, in investigation process, for example. But for an investigator, that could be a huge impediment to them kind of getting to the, um, the bad guy, if you will, or the perpetrator. So I think that going forward, this movement kind of, this movement lacks an ability as it stands 
to really effectively work across disciplines. But there are a few different ways that people are trying to address this issue to improve the way that we um, support victims and survivors of trafficking. And one of those ways is through multidisciplinary teams. A multidisciplinary team is a team of folks who come together in a, a bunch of different reasons why they'll come together. But in a lot of cases, it'll be for case review. So what it'll be is it'll be folks from um, adult protective services or child protective services and service providers and case managers and law enforcement. And they'll all come together in the same room and they'll re review cases of tracking victims or survivors that maybe that they used to serve but have left and they're trying to find. And it's a way for folks to kind of work together, given that we know that these human trafficking victims and survivors are working with a lot of different systems. And it's a great process that kind of facilitates relationships across disciplines and also helps the practitioners better understand what each other does and why each other work the way that that we do. And having coalitions like my task force, where I have a lead service and law enforcement provider, there's not an emphasis on one or the other. It's absolutely imperative to the success of the grant that the law enforcement and service providers are working together because we know that we have to be able to take care of a victim or survivor's needs from before we meet them until until you know after they're gone um, out of our service is and out of an investigation and i think that that's the way that hopefully this movement will go is toward this multidisciplinary collaborative space because that's what's most effective for victims and survivors that was really tan a huge tangent but that's my soapbox seth <laughs> Collaboration, that's the only way forward. <laughs> well, if we're going to provide services, then collaboration is part of that. Mm -hmm. Especially something that is as complex as human trafficking. Yeah, I, I think that's so true. There are just so many different aspects to needs that individuals could have or do have that we have to be able to work across disciplines and with different goals in mind to make what is it, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts? Um, that's what comprehensive case management should look like, is where we have all these different folks working together to make something better um, together than they would have been individual. Well, and as we've seen, not everyone has human trafficking-specific expertise uh, in, in law enforcement or services, which then makes both, both ends of that harder. And uh, when mm -hmm. you have something like labor trafficking, which you, you and I both care about a lot, mm -hmm. when we realize that it just it's hard to investigate, it's, it's a different type of animal and that Absolutely. the victims, like say a male trafficking victim, isn't going to have as many ser specific services for them as a sex trafficking victim. Yeah, that's so true. And you know, at the same time, though, Seth, I would say that there's a little bit of strength in that, too, because the human trafficking movement is so new. I mean, when you think about it, in number of years that human trafficking research and, and efforts have happened in comparison to, let's say, the domestic violence movement, you know, that's, a, that's an old movement that's really well organized, has 
established best practices, and, and we don't really have that, but we're lucky in the sense that uh, if I have a sex trafficking victim, I can collaborate with our sexual assault response team. Um, you know, STAR in New Orleans is fantastic, or um, our domestic service, or sorry, not domestic service. That's how you know I'm a trafficking wonk. Our um, domestic violence partners, and, and we can make a service for a client based off of the skills that they already have. So if they have, you know, specific counseling for sexual trauma, we can refer a client to them for that. And then we can also refer a client to our uh, housing provider who assists people experiencing homelessness because that victim or survivor also could have experienced homelessness. And so we kind of draw on these relationships with people in parallel movements to provide the services for victims and survivors because there's just not enough services yet. So I'm really grateful to be able to kind of extend the hand to parallel movements. And with labor trafficking, we see it too. I often work with immigration services. I'll work with legal services, um, immigrant rights groups, and homeless uh, people experiencing homelessness groups. So we can kind of draw on these folks who work outside of our parameter uh, to find the services that we need. There are, however, some victims who fall through the cracks. For example, if you're a male trafficking victim with a child in New Orleans, there's not a single place for you to get housing. And that's not okay. And so we're constantly trying to like find these gaps in services in order to fill them. We're kind of, you know, plugging up the holes in our in our little ship but it, we're we're slowly coming to realize them thankfully well it's good to have some positive momentum and things that <laughs> a studying trafficking for for all of you out there it, not surprisingly it's it can be really depressing <laughs> and so when you actually see people being helped and you see things that are are working and, and so on, it, it's encouraging. Yes. So even though there are a lot of negatives and a lot of really sad days, there are moments that kind of remind you why we do what we do. Last month, I had the pleasure to join one of my service providers for a special dinner with some of their clients who have, um, who are survivors of trafficking, who have, um, gone through some of the program and I got to sit down at dinner with them and just experiencing that meal with them, getting to have a nice dinner in a back room. It was something that some of them had never experienced before and they were each given a gift and um, it really meant something to them and they expressed how meaningful it was to them and that it was something they'd never forget. And that little moment of normalcy and positivity is what gets me through the day and gets me up the next day doing the hard work. And I know for our case managers and, you know, for our law enforcement agents too, there's nothing that makes them happier than seeing a person that they saw at their lowest point that they, you know, they came across this person and uh, got them out of a situation of trafficking. And six months later, they're clean and, uh, you know, not not using anymore. And 
um, you know, in a safe place. And just that touch point with that person makes their job worth it. That one victory makes it worth it. And so I say we have to find a new measure of success with trafficking because there is a lot of negative. But when you find success, it feels really good. And also I have a corgi at home, so I do a lot of self-care petting her. Right. She's really, she's really cute. Leanne's a corgi fanatic. Yes, I have a little corgi who has her own Instagram. So if you want to explore and find her, she is on the Instagrams. She's really cute. I suggest it. She has eyebrows, like really bushy eyebrows and no tail. I guess most corgis don't have a tail, though, so that's not that exciting. So survivors who are making it and corgis, that's that's what we're going to, to end on. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank, mm-hmm. Thanks for coming on today, Leanne. <laughs> thank you so much, Seth. I really appreciate it. And um, for all of you listening out there, really grateful to know that there is an audience out there that cares about this issue and wants to learn more. Um, it's something that I know I just started studying it when I was an undergrad and just was really passionate about it. And now here I am today and I'm living this and breathing it every day. So there are definitely opportunities out there. If this is something that, that you want to do with your life, um, there's a lot of good work to be done. So come join me in the field (laughs) or, or stay in the ivory tower with with JJ because that's pretty good too. Okay. Well, thanks, Leanne, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Till next time. Thanks, Seth. Bye-bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.